can meet me in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. It's good to see you again. It's good to see faces. This is always much better, <laughs> having people here to talk to as opposed to looking into a camera and kind of hoping that there's people to talk to. So it's good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, again, with all the just the differences and things going on in our world, it's good to come together to worship the Lord. And, and I think it's important for us as believers that as we come together and gather, as we scatter um, on the rest of the week, that we show a hope that is in us that is not in the world. I think that's very important for us to do as Christians, to take that extra measure, that extra opportunity that, ha- that we have with unbelievers, people who don't know Christ, to show them that there is hope in Christ, that there is hope in the gospel, and that we're different, and that we set ourselves apart uh, because of who Jesus is and our relationship with him. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 6, but we had to skip over a few chapters as Pastor Kyle was in chapter 3. Last week, we skipped a few things. So let's recap a little bit as we find our way through Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5. We missed out on the story of Cain and Abel. We missed out on Cain murdering his brother, showing the effects of sin. We missed out on two genealogies. Uh, I know that's always a sad thing to miss out on, right? Because we usually love just camping out in genealogies. Um, But there's actually quite a bit to learn through the genealogies, but we'll get there in a second. Through Adam and Eve, we saw last week that the curse of sin that came and it broke the relationship between God and man. And then in chapter 4, we find the break in the relationship between man and man. As Abel and Cain both brought their sacrifices to God, and Cain's was not accepted because he didn't offer it as a heart of worship. Then he became angry and murdered his brother. So we see this breakdown that happens. It's not just between God and man, but also the effects of sin between man and man. And then we see in the genealogies of Cain and Seth, they are very different. A couple similarities, though, that Cain and Seth both have an Enoch, and they both have a Lamech in their genealogies. But those two people are very different. In Cain's genealogy, we find that they have Enoch, who Cain built these great cities and named them after his son Enoch, to build up and make their name great, as opposed to the Enoch in Seth's line, who was so godly that he didn't even taste death. In Cain's genealogy, he had a Lamech, and this Lamech was evil took two wives and murdered somebody because he was afflicted by that person. And then he willingly aligned himself with Cain. He said, may my curse be that much more. Seth's Lamech, though, he fathered Noah at the end of chapter 5. And in, in his fathering of Noah, he was looking forward to the day that maybe Noah would be the one who would be that Eve's offspring, the seed of the woman, to make everything right. He was looking for God's blessing there. And so we see throughout all of Scripture, and it all starts back in Genesis 3, but we see this cursing that happens through the line of the serpent, through Cain's line, this cursing that comes and battling against 
even Seth's line, the, Seth, the, the blessing line, the line of Adam and Eve. And so we see that all throughout Scripture, of this battle going back and forth. And this morning, we're going to see the line of Cain just gets wiped out totally. But we're also going to see that, really, we are all of this line of Cain. All of this line of cursing, that even through Noah, even through Noah's line being the one of blessing, there still comes the sin and the curse that comes with that. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. So in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, we find the story, the account of the flood. We might all remember that from children's stories growing up, right? I mean, we sing the songs. I'm not going to sing them for you. I'm tempted. I'm tempted. I was really tempted to sing the song, but I won't. Just the, you know, Noah's Ark, right? The animals, they came in by twosies, twosies. I mean, how adorable is that, right? Just the word twosies is really adorable and really cute. What a cute story. You remember the pictures, right, from way back when of the, you know, the animals' heads poking out, and it's just an adorable story. But when we get to it, we find the story really isn't that cute, is it? When we go to the actual account, I did some research these last couple weeks um, by watching these movies, really parts of them, uh, Evan Almighty, uh, the kind of a modern day like story of Noah's flood. It was not uh, surprising, not biblically, ac- biblically accurate, okay? Uh, and the same one with Noah and Russell's Cr- Russell Crowe. Uh, and I heard that they didn't even mention the word God in this movie at all. So I'm guessing it's not going to be very accurate if they don't even mention the main character of the story. But once the rock monster showed up like five seconds in, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. That's not even, not even close to what happened. But it's not hard to, to look at this story and maybe think, could this really have happened? This is a really a, a big story, a big account to say, did God really do this? Did he really flood the entire world? Did that happen? Well, we're going to look together in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. So look with me. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Let's pray. Lord, we'd ask, <clears throat> as we look at this passage, uh, there's a lot in here, a lot we're not going to be able to get to, but I pray that we get to the main point of this account, of why you have written it down for us, so that we can see that you continue Uh, to fulfill your covenant. You can continue to fulfill your promise to us, and we see it all even fulfilled in Christ. Help us to see Jesus in this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start this morning by taking a look back to the garden, because throughout all the scripture, and we're going to be jumping around quite a bit in chapters 6 through 9, Um, So it's kind of an odd way of going through this account, but I want us to see how a lot of what's talked about goes back to and points back to what happened in the garden. 
When God created, he looked out over everything and he said it was good. He gave commands to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He gave them dominion over the face of the earth and all the creatures. They were also given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we remember that they broke that command and sinned against God. And we also remember how that sin wasn't just in taking the fruit. It wasn't just taking and eating of the fruit. Pastor Kyle reminded us well how there's so many more deeper things going on in our hearts when we sin. There's a sin of wanting to be like God, a sin of pride, the sin of not being content with God. There's always more going on in the heart, and we need to make sure we realize that as we sin, it's not just that outward thing. What were all the things in our heart that were leading up to it? But we see in chapter 6 now, verse 1, that they were multiplying on the face of the land. This command to be fruitful and multiplying, they're doing that. And so we might look at that and say, oh, they're doing well. But in come the sons of God. And they were taking these daughters and they were marrying as many as they chose, taking as many as they wanted. Now in this sons of God, there's always the controversy. Who are the sons of God? So there are three main interpretations of who the sons of God are. One of them is that they are the sons of Seth. They are the godly line that is coming. And so these sons of God are taking the daughters of men, and those would be the line of Cain. The second interpretation refers to uh, these as being maybe kings or tyrants. And referring, but the third one, that the one that I would uh, fall for and go towards, is the interpretation of the sons of God referring to them as fallen angels. And it seems a bit crazy that they would be fallen angels. It seems a, maybe a bit fanciful to, to go towards that. But let me uh, walk you through a, a little bit of why I would believe that they are fallen angels. Definitely not a hill that I'm going to die on because there's theological heavyweights on both sides of who they think this is. Okay, People who love the Lord and are much smarter than I am. So here's why I would believe that um, they are the fallen angels. Because we see in verse 4, there's a correlation between some unnatural thing that is resulting in the Nephilim. That these are mighty men, that these are giants that are uh, on the land. And the book of Numbers describes them also as being giants. But so I'm thinking that there's some unnatural way that these guys would be bigger and stronger than everyone else. Also, we see in the terms of the Son of God, it's not actually used very often in Scripture. But we see it in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1. That's referring to fallen angels going with Satan before the Lord. I also read that some of the earliest translations actually translated this as angels of God. I also see this difference, too, between describing in verse 3, where he says, For he is flesh, talking about man, as opposed to the sons of God, which were not flesh. But they did, were able to become that flesh to marry the, the daughters of man. And lastly, I believe it, really, this is probably one of the biggest, biggest reasons, because I, I see in, in the scripture of man beginning to multiply in the face of the earth in chapter 6, verse 1, and then we see a fallen angel trying to stop the plan of God. And that's what we see back in Genesis chapter 3 as well. We see 
man fulfilling what God has designed, Adam and Eve living in the garden, walking with God, and then we see this fallen angel come in and try to twist and try to turn what God has said was good to be fruitful and multiply, and then they just twist it. And that's what I think I see here. That's what I see here in the scriptures as seeing these fallen angels coming in and they're multiplying, but just twisting it, just taking it and and switching it to making it something ungodly. And we see that the wickedness of man was great in the earth in verse five. But we don't want to get hung up on who we think that they are. But we see that the important part of this passage is not who the sons of God are, but it's in what is going on. There is evil on the face of the earth. About 1,600 years ago, God created man and looked out and saw that it was good. Now he looks out, and we see in verse 5, that there is evil, wickedness over the entire earth. Even as mankind was fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply, every person, with the exception of Enoch, saw death. Even though there was life given over and over, we now see that death still has victory. Sin was still in the heart of each person who have lived. And the more people there are, the more sin there is. And with the rampant sin all around, God said that he regretted that he had made man. We see that in verse 6 and verse 7, this regret that happens. How can God regret something? When we regret something, it's because we shouldn't have done that. Right? We have some shame that we committed this act and we regret doing that. So with God, how can he regret something? If he does something perfectly, he does everything holy, everything the right way, how could he regret this? It's kind of like a parent who has to discipline their child. They, they look at their child and they have deep regret and sorrow. Not that they had their child, not that their child is theirs, but there is regret in knowing that they must punish It's actually a phrase that means that there is a sigh, a deep sigh of grief, looking out over man and seeing the evil that is there and just God saying, I'm going to have to punish this. Because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, verse 5, was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a picture. You can't look at that verse and think, well, I think man was generally good. I think people are generally nice. You look at this and you see really that without God, every intention of every thought is only evil. And in Genesis chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, you see all flesh, because of this sin, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Again, a callback to Genesis 3, when God breathed in. Genesis 1 through 3, where God breathed life into man, and now he is destroying that life because of sin. And he blotted everything out. Erased it all. Because of the wickedness of man. From Adam to Cain to Noah, man was evil and had sin. 
So we have to think, why was Noah and his family saved? If every intention of every thought was only evil for all of mankind, that God said, I'm going to destroy this planet with a flood, why did Noah get spared? Let's look at verse 8 of chapter 6. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? It makes you wonder why, right? Why Noah? But we have to go to our theology of all of Scripture to understand why Noah. And the reason does not speak volumes of Noah, but it speaks volumes of God. Because we know in Ephesians chapter 2 that every person who lives on the face of the planet, except for Jesus, is born with a sin nature. That we are all dead in our sins. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says that even our righteous works are like filthy rags to God. So how can a person like that be shown favor by God? It's because God is gracious. It speaks volumes of God. It's not of Noah and what did he do. It's not like we're looking at Noah and saying, God's like, well, I want that guy on my team. Look how amazing he is. He's so perfect. He doesn't have any sin at all. I want him. No, it's because God looked out on the wickedness of man and he said, I'm going to show my favor to him. I'm going to show my favor to Noah. And it's when he shows his favor to Noah, we see in verse 9 that Noah was then a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah wasn't blameless and righteous just because of who he was. He was blameless and righteous because God chose to show him favor. God in his grace. Because he is God, he gets to select and choose whom he will show favor to. Because God is gracious. Not because Noah was great. Not because he was awesome, but because God was gracious. And we have to see that. That any way that any one of us will be saved is because God is gracious to you. That's why. In the flood, we see true wickedness of mankind. We see the destruction that really every single one of us deserve. I want us to picture ourselves at this time of the flood. Look at chapter 7 with me, verse 11 and 12. And imagine yourself not on the ark. It's in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine being the one maybe seeing Noah built the ark for 100 years, working on that thing, being a herald of righteousness and rejecting that over and over again thinking he's crazy, being so wicked that you maybe repel him and mock him, ridicule him. Maybe you're one that, you were one of the ones that you didn't know that this was coming. You didn't hear Noah. You didn't hear him talk about this flood. And still, you don't know what's happening, and all of a sudden, the earthquake that you've never felt before, tsunamis that are coming in, leveling these great cities that Cain had built to his son Enoch, saying, we're going to make these wonderful cities and build up man. Seeing them leveled to the ground with this flood. 
40 days and 40 nights, you're climbing to the highest mountain that you can reach, doing your best to try to escape the devastation. But in chapter 7, verse 19, we find that the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. A worldwide flood. Now, the story of Noah and the flood is often used as a lovely children's story, maybe to talk about boats and animals. It might be easy to gloss over the massive amount of devastation and death. God blotting out and erasing everything from the face of the ground. The earth was flooded for 150 days. It wasn't until God said to go out from the ark in chapter 8, verse 7, he said, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and wives with you, that they were free to go. Once they were off the ark, God then renewed them some, uh, renewed some commands from the garden, and he said that they are again to have dominion over the earth. He says that they are to be fruitful and to multiply, and God adds a new command not to commit murder. We find this ground being cursed. And because Lamech, in chapter 5, verse 28, when Lamech gave birth to Noah, if you'll look there with me really quick, chapter 5, verse 28, he says, Out of the ground the Lord cursed. This one thing shall bring us relief from our work and the, from the painful toil of our hands. When he named Noah, he said, Maybe this one will bring us relief. Maybe this one, Noah's name means rest. Maybe this one will bring us rest. Enoch didn't have to taste death. He didn't even die. Maybe this is the line. Maybe this is what's going to happen for us to finally be set free from this pain of sin, this curse. Maybe Noah will be the one to bring rest. And it's interesting to note that this word is used also when the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. To bring the rest. But we find in this account that Noah, he didn't really bring back that final rest, did he? He brought back some hope. There there was hope that was fulfilled in Noah to a degree. But just as a conduit, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was hope in them that God was continuing to fulfill his covenant through them. But they weren't that final hope. That final hope was looking for a savior. And that's what the point of this ark story is about. It shines a light on the wickedness of man and it points to Christ. You might look at that and say, man, God just destroyed. How, how crazy is that for God to destroy an entire planet with a flood? We need to remind ourselves in 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires, since you are here with us this morning, whether online or right here present, God is wanting you to know that he is patient towards you. He is gracious towards you, and you are here this morning to be able to hear the story of Christ to hear that hope that is in Jesus, wanting you to repent of your sin. While we all deserve the destruction that we find in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, 
God wants us and desires for us to repent. I pray as that we look through these four signs that point us to a Savior, I pray that you will see maybe the Old Testament in a new light. Maybe you're going to desire to read through the Bible in a year starting next year. That as you read through the Old Testament account that you'll just see over and over and over again of it pointing to Jesus. Looking forward to Jesus. Looking to that final hope that everyone in the Old Testament was looking for. That you'll see Christ in that Old Testament. First we see that Jesus is the singular way. There was only one door on the ark. There is only one way in. And isn't it tremendous that they give us, God gives us the uh, specifics of how the ark was to be built. Why would he put in all those details? We're not supposed to be building an ark because he's not going to flood the world again. So why do we have these in our Bible? I think it just shows how God is very specific on his way of salvation for Noah. He didn't just say, hey, Noah, build a big boat. I don't really care how big it doesn't really matter. Just build it however you want. It's up to you. God was very specific. It has one door and one way in, and it's going to be built to his exact standards. The only way to be saved is God's way. Chapter 6, verse 16 shows that there's only one door, one way in. And then in chapter 7, verse 16, we see that God is the one who shut that door. I bet there was nothing more reassuring than Noah getting on the boat with his family, probably like, okay, do I have everything? Uh, I think I, I don't know, is it time now? Like, to not be certain, the rain's coming, like, did I do everything I was supposed to do? And then God being the one to shut the door. So reassuring for Noah to say, okay, this is it. He wouldn't have put me in here. He wouldn't have me build this boat and shut me in here if he wasn't going to save me. So that assurance and protection, that safety from destruction. And it wasn't just God that shut him in, but it was God who would sustain him and his family through that storm and keep them safe. There is no one that will come to the Father except through Jesus. No one. There is no alternative. There's, God is not just saying, well, I'm just going to put it out there. Just believe however you want. You know, I want you to be saved, but I'm not going to really tell you. It's just, you guys can figure it out. It'll be fine. No, God says that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God has made it clear throughout all of scripture, Old Testament and New, been very consistent. The Old Testament always pointing to Jesus, the New Testament pointing back to what Jesus has done on the cross that salvation is only through him. There's one way, one way to enter into salvation, and that's through Christ. Second, we see the sufficiency of this salvation. This ark was amazing. You know, we, we look at these children's books, and we see the heads popping out, you know. And I, I know the artists are trying to just say, let's just make this look cute for the children. But 
kind of inadvertently, they're saying, ah, the animals couldn't really have all fit on there. God didn't even plan it out well enough for giraffe heads to fit inside the ark. So they couldn't really figure that out. But really, this was a massive ark. Uh, We got to go there a number of years ago um, to the ark encounter in Kentucky. I encourage you to go if you haven't been. And definitely come with us if we go again, because it's a lot more fun. Uh, Because we have a great time. But looking at the ark, it is massive. It is huge. When they built it to the specifications, that was the one thing that I was really floored with when I walked up. I was just like, yeah, I could see it. I mean, you look at the dimensions in the Bible, and you're like, I don't know, how much is a cubit? And you're kind of thinking, like, could this all have happened? When you go and you see this ark, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that could happen. This ark was huge. It was sufficient to save. Unlike the movie Noah, there weren't leaks and potential of capsizing. If God said, this is the way to be saved from this flood, build it to these specifications. God has shut them in. Do you think there was even a chance that they would die in there? Was there even a chance that it would get flooded? That it would capsize? Absolutely not. It was not only sufficient to save, but even to preserve them through the entirety of the storm. Jesus is sufficient to save. His death on the cross, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, says that he is the propitiation for our sins. He takes away our penalty. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save. You don't need anything else. You don't need Jesus and. Well, I, I, have, I believe in Jesus, but I also, you know, I probably need to go to church enough times. Probably need to read my Bible enough times. No. Jesus is sufficient to save. You need nothing else just like that ark was sufficient to save because that's what god had set up for noah and his family they didn't need anything else they didn't need to bring life preservers onto the boat that ark was sufficient to save jesus is sufficient you need nothing else no one else we also see that god fulfills his covenant the end of chapter 8, after Noah and his family left the ark, Noah knew that God had saved him, and what did he do? He offered up a burnt offering. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an, ar- built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Even after all the death... <laughs> Noah knew that there needed to be more death in worship to God. There needed to be sacrifices to be given in order to continue to worship God. It wasn't over. Even though uh, the man, mankind was saved through the line of Noah, it wasn't done. He, he wasn't the final savior. There was still more to come. Sacrifices still needed to be made. And as you read your Bible, going through your Bible plan, I pray that you see that. That you see this, all the sacrifices being done throughout all of the Old Testament leading up to Christ. 
that you see that as them looking for the final Savior, fulfilling finally that covenant that God had made back with Adam and Eve. But there was sin that continued. Sinful man, but God continuing to show his grace, continuing to show his mercy over and over again throughout that Old Testament. As you continue to read through it, may you just be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God, not destroying the earth over and over again as he continues to look out and see the wickedness of man. They'd been waiting 1,600 years for a savior. They'd have to wait even longer. Because even though God saved through Noah, the line of man, In chapter 9, verse 21, we realize that he brought sin with him, him and his family. In chapter 9, verse 21, he lay drunk and naked in his tent. A shameful thing that he was covered up by his sons. He may have saved his family, but it's clear that the curse of sin was still with him. It was still continuing on, and so sacrifices continued to be made. Until one day, when Jesus fulfills everything in Christ, in him. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It can never really take away those sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished It was done. No more sacrifices needed to be made. Because Jesus fulfilled all of those covenants that God had made through Adam and Eve, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through David. It was finally all realized in Christ. And he set up his bow in chapter 9, verse 13. He set up his bow in the clouds that he would never flood the earth again. Another covenant that he made with us. And as we love looking at rainbows, we all love chasing them down, right? We get out in our cars to go out and look for these rainbows. I pray that we look at them maybe with a new light. Not just that they're beautiful to look at, but that you're reminded of the mercy and grace of God. That you look at that and you see that that covenant that God made so many years ago, he is still fulfilling. Each and every time there's a rain, may you be reminded that God keeps his promise that God fulfills his covenant, and that God has ultimately fulfilled it in Christ. May you turn to Christ when you see those rainbows. And finally, we see the true and final hope in Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 4, find that that ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Noah's name, again, remember, meaning rest. We find that there's hope once again, that through salvation on the ark, there will be rest. But the problem, once again, is that Noah brought his sin with him. There's going to be sin. There's going to be the curse of sin. It's going to happen over and over again. There will be pandemics. There will be murder. There will be arguing and fighting. While the earth will not be destroyed with water, we are not out of the woods quite yet. God has promised that the earth will be destroyed with fire. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, but this, 
By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There has come one who is greater than Adam, greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, Moses, Elijah, greater than John the Baptist, and his name is Jesus. Born without sin and never sinned, the one who would be the true ark of salvation. Jesus is that final and only hope. There's going to be major issues that happen in our world. We live in a sin-cursed world, and we feel it over and over and over again, don't we? Even as believers, we, we look to elections that happen, and we oftentimes, sometimes we put our hope in those things. You know, if we don't, uh, are so concerned when Clinton was elected, oh, what's going to happen then it was when Bush was elected, oh, what's going to happen? Then Obama, and then President Trump, and then it just goes on and on and on. And every election that happens, we're gonna, if we continue to put our hope in those things, you're going to see it failed over and over again. If it wasn't with the Black Death Plague, the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu, or Ebola, or now COVID, it's going to go on and on. The sin curse is going to continue to go on. It wasn't earthquakes and tsunamis or hurricanes, local floods. It's going to go on and on. So many crises that happen. So many things that happen, even in our relationships with one another. Do we need to talk through all the ways that your spouse has let you down? Or your kids, or your parents, your friends, your pastors. We've let you down. We haven't all fulfilled your hopes and dreams. Before you continue to keep putting your hope in your health, putting your hope in politics, putting your hope in relationships, all those things, realize that your only true and final hope must be in Christ. He is the only one who will not let you down. He is the only one that God has said that he will fulfill all his covenants with is in Christ. Put your hope in him. Stop looking to the sin-cursed world to be the all-satisfying joy of your life. Look to Christ. I want to encourage you to flip over with me to Matthew chapter 24. We'll close with this passage. As we turn our attention to Matthew, turn our attention to Jesus. Again, Jesus mentions this story of Noah. So if Jesus talks about Noah as being a real historical account... We can believe that it is, can't we? In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day, Jesus is speaking here, that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then verse 44. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you think you're good enough? Do you think you're better than Noah? You think you've achieved enough in your life to escape the wrath of God? Even Noah, 
who says that God's God showed grace to him, he was blameless and righteous and found favor with God. And, and he was the one who walked with God. Even he still was looking for a savior. He, even he made those sacrifices, looking to the one who's going to come and bring hope. Do you think you're better than he is? That you don't need this Jesus? That you might escape it by your good works? I assure you that you are not. I say that in love. If Noah didn't escape the penalty of sin, he was saved by the grace of God. And you too can be saved by the grace of God. Would you trust in that only sufficient way of salvation? And I plead with you, as Noah pleaded for a hundred years, as the herald of righteousness, you don't know when your last day is. You don't know when the Son of Man will come. You must repent of your sins, turn to Christ as he is the true ark. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's difficult living in this sin-cursed world. <clears throat> Lord, we're met with death and sickness. We're met with relationships that are difficult. Lord, it's hard. We look forward to Christ. We look forward to when he might come. I pray that we will turn to you, that we, as you, you have showered your grace on us, that we might continue to look to Christ as our hope, that we might continue to look to Christ as the one who is sufficient, not, not only to save, sufficient for our joy and our happiness. Help us to keep looking to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.